You're listening to The Originators, a 2FM collective podcast. Hi, I'm Rick O'Shea and welcome to this episode of RTE2FM's podcast series, Originators. Throughout the series, I'll be talking to Irish under 35s from sometimes wildly varying fields who found success and finding out how it happened and who they really are. This episode was recorded in the top-secret office and workspace of Irish designer Chuppie Sweetman. She started as a designer for Topshop and now produces a multi-award-winning jewellery brand under her own name that sells worldwide. I started off by talking to her about just how hard it was to find her in the first place. I didn't really think this through initially because we, we've arranged to come and meet you here. Your studio is just right there next door to where we are and we're, we're in a little conference room here um, beside it. And we had really good instructions. And even then, we found it almost impossible to get here. And you said, well, you know, it's security. So it's one of, it's one of the, the deeply unsexy things about, about making beautiful, sparkly things is we've got to be very security conscious. So we've, we've got a beautiful big studio, 1,600 square feet. It's all renovated. It's amazing. And we can never invite anyone to it. So my whole team work here, but we don't have a sign on the door. Or we don't tell anyone where it is. And it, it's, it's one of the risk things. But... It's kind of nice. We've our own little magical cave. If I were to look out the window right now, I would say this is the least likely place <laughs> that you would ever find any kind of fashion or jewellery design enterprise going on anywhere. If I was to just look out that window it's, there, I'd go, no. It's not a glamorous location, but it was actually a huge deal. So we worked out of my house. Until last year, we couldn't have afforded a, a proper studio. So we worked out of my house, which I told people was because it suited our lifestyle and it was about living in our beautiful Georgian. But actually, it was far more practical. We didn't have any bloody money. Or we did, and every penny we had, we put back into building the company and making it pop, making it work. So my husband was like, okay, we need to find offices, we need to find offices. At that stage, we had harnessed every single room in our house except the bathroom had become part of our offices. It was obscene. We, like, we had to climb over stuff to get into bed so we needed to move and the team was growing and we were at the point where there was six of us working in a room not much bigger than this which is about maybe 120 square feet six of us full-time it's pretty hardcore so and it also meant I presume that you, you could never really leave work work was always there I'm not sure leaving work is my strong point <laughs> I don't think um, backing away from work has ever been something I've been good at and actually I really miss working from home I find it very convenient but um, when we were looking for somewhere, and you know, Dublin kind of has a dearth of beautiful, amazing, incredible properties with a working goods lift and uh, you know wooden floors and exposed brick walls. I was not having blue carpet and strip lighting. And then one day we just, we found this ridiculously beautiful place and walked in and fell in love and it was perfect. I felt a little bit gypped, to be honest with you, because I wanted to use the goods lift coming up here. <laughs> But but you're only on the first floor, and I felt like I would seem really lazy if I got the it's goods over lift up. 150 years old, you can't use it for human beings, so we can only bring in. So oh. we bring in a huge amount of packaging because although the, the sparkly things are very tiny, the packaging's obscene. Okay, I'm going to scroll back a, a little bit. You were brought up in Wicklow, kind of very rural in the middle of nowhere. Are we talking farmland? Uh, we're talking wild wilderness, halfway up a mountain. Last house on the road. My mom is from Sandy Mountain. My dad's from Lincolnshire, but uh, her grandparents were Wicklow in in Glendalock and um, she just always loved Wicklow so when they bought a house they bought I think they possibly went what is the most remote house we didn't have electricity till I was eight so we had we had a generator (laughs) where do I start with that okay so So my parents um, abandoned town and my dad's an economist my mum's a a writer and, and they moved out to Wicklow to Hollywood which is a tiny tiny village it's a couple of hundred people in in the Wicklow mountains and uh, yeah, the house, they bought a really beautiful old stone um, house, renovated it, but the ESB still didn't, hadn't finished electrifying Ireland. And that's 1992. 
92. I'm born in 84, so it's 1992. That's terrifying to think that that is a reality. <laughs> yeah. And they'd spent their life working outside of Ireland. So they were in, got married in Dar es Salaam in Tanzania, worked in Sri Lanka, Guatemala, Honduras, up and down South America. Hence Jupi. My folks, so my dad's an economist, so they would have been with the World Bank and traveling loads and working loads. And they were I went out to South America and um, were speaking Spanish and completely immersed like you just you switch over mum said you know after the first kind of couple of months you just adapt so he spoke Spanish the whole time and, and really fell in love with it and fell in love with the area and the people and then came home to Ireland to have babies and um, I was born and mum said I was meant to be called Chloe and then I was born and mum was like you really born to Chloe I'm like thanks mum so chupi you say to a little baby so you bounce the baby on your knee and you go chupi chupi my love my darling it's interesting because, and we were having this conversation on the way over here, because obviously your, your name is now your brand. <laughs> obviously, if you'd been called Chloe, that might have been a bit awkward. It would have been very awkward. There definitely would have been a lawsuit in the office. Yeah, or, or even if you'd been called, you know, Joanne or Mary, or that, that wouldn't but really have worked out, I'd or would it? If called Mary, would I have been a jeweller? Would I have grown up and been a fashion designer? Would I? I think there's something about having a weird name, and I, I have no hang-ups about the fact that my name is really weird and unusual. That kind of predetermines what you're going to do. So it's like, it's like the theory of nominative determinism where people have, 100%. where Mr. Baker ends yeah. up becoming a baker and where Mr. Okay. I remember my dad sat me down when I was 16 and he was like, darling, it's time we think about your career. What are you going to do when you grow up? And um, he was like, you know, I think it's time you think about a nice sensible degree like economics and go to LSE, conveniently the degree and school he went to in London. And I was like, dad, I really feel like you know, this conversation is probably pointless. I'm 16, I'm called Chupi. Like, you should have had this a long time ago. I, very early on, always, I've always had to, like, I was, I'm actually very shy, which seems very ironic because we do a lot of social media and I meet a lot of people and do a lot of talking. And having a name like Chupi kind of forces you to get over that. So at what point then do you go, okay, it's going to be something creative and it's going to be something that involves what you do now? Where's the jump? When does it happen? It's funny. So I've, I've written a cookbook. I've been a fashion designer for Topshop and now I run a jewellery brand. And for me, that feels like a completely logical sequence of events. But looking back at my 16-year-old self, there's no way I would have predicted that that's what I would have done. And, and a career seems like such a loose term to describe all of the things you do and everything you do that's part of it. And anyway, I feel like I've always been me. I'm just me doing all the things. It just makes logical sense I, I tend to I was homeschooled so um, my mum when I was really little I was really sick and I couldn't go to school and mum was amazing so she taught us at home in, and in a very unconventional way Is it true I've heard this story that you went to your parents at the age of 14 and said uh, can we get rid of the telly? <laughs> I did so I'm a bit of a nerd and um, we had really unconventional homeschooling like not you know you never didn't sit down to class there was none of this it was like okay today we're learning French or you know tomorrow we're going to go on a huge big hike and my mum is one of the founding members of the Irish women's movement so she's all about you know self-determination and find your path uh, but then I was 14 and, and I'm quite a nerd and I was like I wanted to check that I was doing okay that I was on par with all of my peer group and so all my friends were doing junior, the junior search and I was like okay cool I'm going to do the junior search except I decided that in third year so I'd only a year really to learn it about eight months and so I decided the TV was a terrible distraction and so I asked mum could we throw it out and mum said yeah so we haven't had a TV since 
they obviously weren't that wedded to it in the first place. No, they weren't. Because for some people, you know, when one of your kids comes along and says, can we get rid of the TV? That could be a cause of conflict. Like radio people. And I know that's funny because I was talking about this yesterday, saying that we were very much brought up with like Radio 4 on, RTE on, you know, that that was our, that was the story of our lives, the background noise. You know, people put on the TV while they're eating. Like, it's the most awful thing in the entire world. You know, the TV's just on in the background, this like blaring monster demanding your attention. Whereas the radio kind of becomes part of everything. The implication is that we're wallpaper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's fine. That's a perfectly, perfectly decent, decent point of view. No, but that it's not a demand for 100% of your attention. You can listen to, to the news, listen to politics, listen to the story without having to be, give it every part of your soul. Whereas I think TV is a really dangerous thing. Like I love it. Like, don't get me wrong. I have Netflix and I love tuning off in the evening and watching terrible, terrible television. But what's I, your most recent Netflix binge? How to get away with murder. I like, like, awful. Just t- so trashy. Bloody brilliant. I enjoyed it like nobody's business. Because it turns my brain off. You know, like you watch Netflix and your whole brain just goes... Tunk. Because particularly if your brain is churning all day, every day, yeah. you need something to make you go, no, I'm done. Yeah. And I'm you. done, then it turns me off. I know you, you kind of skimmed over this, but that you go, well, when I was in Topshop, at, w- at what point you did design for, for Topshop? And you were relatively young at the time. How did they, they, they find you? How did you find them? What happened? I was a baby. I was 21. And I say that at 33. And it's funny. I, I think at 21, I felt far more grown up than I do now. I, I was I was terrible. From about the age of 12, I was convinced I pretty much figured it out. And I was like, okay, you know, I've kind of figured out this whole adulthood thing. I'll be grand. And at 33, I'm not sure I I feel the same way. Yeah, Topshop. I was 21 when I got scouted to design for them. So I got to run away and design a women's wear label exclusively for Topshop. So I was through the UK and Ireland and I did it for six years and it was amazing. How do you get scouted? You make yourself sound like a footballer. (laughs) Do they just turn up one day? Do they? It sounds so pat and it's really funny because I do a bit of mentoring for young design businesses and it sounds so easy. I got scouted, you know, like someone waved, a fairy godmother waved a magic magic wand but um so when I was 16 I, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up but I had loads of things I loved and so I've always made things I, I had a singer sewing machine when I was five with a real needle and like it was electric which seems terrifying perfectly safe yeah. plugged into the wall five years old with a little electric sewing machine so I've always made clothes and dresses so kind of from about 16 on 17 onwards I made dresses and I sold them through this gorgeous little shop in Temple Bar called Shashi and it was in this bright pink building and it's still the shop is still there still there yeah, yeah still yeah. there and um so that was how I paid my way through college and I went and did fashion design in college when I was 20 and I had my little label for about four years and I was down in a fashion market in Temple Bar and Topshop were scouting Ireland for young designers to work with them and I got a card from a Topshop scout and it was one of the most exciting days of my life the week where I did the interview and I had to find out whether I was getting it or not was the longest week of my entire life because it was like my life was before me forking into two different paths going one going to Topshop and one going back to college and I liked college but not that much and they're two very different paths very very different and Topshop was amazing it was a total baptism of fire I was 21 I remember the week leading up to the launch I was my friends were in my house we were sewing the labels into the clothes because production or you know any of that I didn't have any of that and the first night in Topshop we sold out it was such an exciting night like it was free drinks and we'd never been to it like my <laughs> friends came because we've never been to an event with free drinks it was just like god this is cool oh look we're like we're grown-ups getting free alcohol and then everything sold out i went into the store next morning and we had three dresses three skirts left on the rail and no stock in the back room and it, it's one of the key things of retail is what you have on the floor you've exactly the same in the back room so when you sell out you put the things from the stock room out and I had no idea. I had no business training. I had no, no financial management, no strategy, no partner, just me. 
And a lot of determination. So does that put another enormous weight on your shoulders then where you go, oh, it's happened, Topshop have found me, it's been successful, oh my God, what happens next? It was terrifying. At what point when you're with Topshop do you decide, no, I've got to go and do something now on my own, that I've got to go and set up my own little empire? What happens? I did it for six years and I bloody loved it. It was amazing. 21 to 27, I designed like party dresses and, you know, it was amazing. And then... I started getting bored and like I'm I'm loads of things I'm you know I I'm a workaholic I'm super control freak I love getting to do all the things I love working I love what I do and I'm really passionate about it but I got started getting bored and that was such a danger signal it's like bored is not something you should ever be at work not at 27 you know I had no responsibilities I had nothing nothing that I had to do Brian had just proposed and I, I suddenly earned an engagement ring and it was the weirdest thing. It, it was the first time I'd ever owned something like that, something so precious. And my grandmom had left me this necklace and it made me realise that jewellery has a magic like nothing else in the whole world. It marks moments and tells stories and, you know, travels through time. You make something today that will be around in thousands of years. Brian was like, oh, well, you know, you really like it. Maybe you should make something. So. I think anyone who's got any sort of, you know, if, if you like design, you tend to be really fussy. And I'd always find it hard to find things I loved. So I started making jewellery I loved. And yeah, it was a slippery slope. Because making something like jewellery, I would presume there, there are two roads you can go. One of which is very mass market, selling thousands upon thousands upon thousands of items. Maybe disposable is the wrong word, but things that if you were to just kind of lose them somewhere, it wouldn't be yeah. a big deal. But then the other end is, like you said, things that tend to last for, for, for decades and is that why you went that um, route? Well, I've always been fascinated. So even with Topshop, we did our manufacturing in Ireland. So for those six years, we made around 20,000 dresses a year in Ireland. Every single piece got made here. And I've always loved the idea that why can't we we take something and do it properly? Like, why do we need to outsource everything? Why does it all need to go? I love, I've always loved that idea. So when I, I fell in love with all the sparkly things and thought, oh, um had a quarter life crisis which is I thoroughly recommend I think it's a great idea you should definitely have one a good crisis I think is always worth having because I think we get it's this weird thing where it's like oh generation snowflake and all the millennials and they can't decide what they want to do you know I don't believe in that thing that you'll never you know find something you love and you'll never work again that's total load of rubbish find something you love and you'll never stop working because it'll be your driving passion and the thing that makes you fall in love with it every day like I I spend maybe 80% of my day on, on my computer with spreadsheets but there's still the pleasure in that the moment of being like yes look at the thing look what I made and after I quit Topshop I retrained as a goldsmith with this wonderful master silversmith called Cormac Cuff who's an amazing man in his 60s and he trained me and I'm, I'm very I'm like oh how does this work how does this work how does this work and the poor man I tortured him but it was lovely to get to to make things and to see this, this whole amazing industry that happens. And I thought, well, why don't we? Why can't we make beautiful, incredible things and sell them all over the world and sell them in the thousands, but make it in Ireland? On top of all of that, you make items for yourself, I presume, that don't end up <laughs> in the real world for, for everyone else. Or, or do you? I mean, just being, being presumptuous. So it's really funny. I, I think designers fall into two categories. People who love to make one thing that makes one person incredibly happy, you know, like make the, you know, the 40,000 quid ring that gets one person really excited. I bloody love designing for people. It's like the moment where you stand in front of the mirror and you're like, oh my God, this top is in like the most amazing top in the whole world. How have you not been in my life? And that look of pleasure in someone's face where they find the thing that just speaks to them. I actually think I'm not a very good designer. It's one of my big flaws is that I design things I love. And that's it. That's all I can design. I can only design things that move me. If you asked me to design a men's collection, you know, with a corporate feel, I, I wouldn't know where to start. I wouldn't know where the story comes from. I wouldn't know who they are and why they want it. 
Isn't that true, for instance, though, of you know, most authors, for instance, or most playwrights or most people who create pieces of music, that they would say exactly the same thing? Yeah, yeah, because it's like a voice. I, I only have my voice. And I, I think if I was, I left uni after, you know, I only did my one year and I was thinking, okay, maybe if I'd done that, you know, I'd be able to speak in other voices, but I can only speak in mine. And so that's why you were asking, do I design things for, for me that never make it out into the world? A couple of things, but I kind of find if I fall in love with it, I want to share it. I'm like, I'm so excited. I'm like a kid. I'm like, look at this amazing. So I'm wearing a tiny little moon necklace and um, it was inspired by E. Cummings uh, You're my sun, my moon and all of my stars and I just love those words And so I did a collection of tiny little suns, moons and stars and it started out as a piece for me but I, I just like I was so in love with it I was like no, no this is like I want I want to see people's faces when they try it on. I want to, I want to mark those moments that are special. I suppose what I had meant was I had heard the story that at, at least one point in your life, when you were going out on a Saturday night and you needed a dress, you'd just simply start <laughs> making one on Tuesday. I'm desperate. I'm like, and I'm still doing that. Like I, I spend my life customizing everything I ever buy. I don't think I've ever bought anything and left it alone. I've been like, oh, if I just did this to it, if I just changed it, I, for sure I still do it to all my clothes. I have, I have a pile of things that are nearly right. It just needs to be a little bit shorter, a little bit longer, a little bit tighter, slightly different colours, slightly different. And I, I do it with my jewellery. So everything I ever make for me ends up being mine. Yeah, I always change it slightly bit. It's a slightly different cut on the stone. It's a slightly different finish. I wouldn't say it's the most perfectly finished things because I, I'd much rather make something beautiful than make something perfect. And I think, we, I think we spend a lot of our time chasing this idea of perfect when instead we could be chasing the idea of beautiful. For those people who don't know the scale of what it is you do these days, how big is this, all of this <laughs> that you do here? Where where does your stuff go? Where is it sold? Where are your tentacles these days of the business? <laughs> my sparkly tentacles. Yeah, your sparkly my tentacles. My sequin-covered tentacles. Yeah. We're in my studio. Um, we have uh, 22 on my team. We're a brilliant mix of wonderful people. We export into 64 countries, B2C. That's Iraq, Iran, the Philippines, obviously all the all the obvious ones. And then we're B2C, B2B, so we work with stores in the UK, the US, Germany and Japan. And Japan only happened last week, so it's really exciting. We're really growing on a scale. We show at London Fashion Week, so we're back there in a couple of months. Um, and we've got Kylie Minogue wearing pieces, all these wonderful, you know, kind of brilliant, inspirational people. And everything is still made in Ireland. I get to, I'm my title's creative director. I get to design all the beautiful things. I also get to remember to order the bin bags. So you're the director of absolutely <laughs> everything that goes on here. Well, we're, I have a, a brilliant team, but we're, we're still very tiny and we're very much still a startup. So there's still so many things. And, you know, I want it to, I want to feel part of all of it. And I, I'm, I'm not at the stage yet where I'm delegating the crappy things. What's the strangest place that you've ever been where you've seen somebody wearing one of your items? Oh, that's a good question. Actually, it's Japan. <laughs> it's really weird. So we went on honeymoon to Japan um, 18 months ago. And it was such a weird thing. We were like standing at, it was near Shinjuku, which is the, the big cross crossing. And um, this woman is walking towards me. And I was like looking at her necklace going, no, like it can't be. We're in Japan. It's not, it's not possible. It's definitely not. She's walking towards me and it was one of my necklaces. And I was so shocked. I couldn't even stop to like, I didn't stop her I didn't say anything to her I was just like oh okay and here we are it's one of the questions I've asked everybody in this series about the nature of their relationship to social media what's yours hi my name is Chippy and I'm addicted to Instagram with my first company with working with Stop Shop I um I didn't have any social media 
I it sounds crazy so it's 12 years ago but remember 12 years ago you probably had a personal Facebook page profile thing but you wouldn't have had anything else and my friend was like you need a Facebook page you know everyone's wearing the things and taking the photographs and you, you know you need to see all that and um, I was like you mean set up a page with me and ask people to like it I would sooner die of embarrassment you'd be mortified I, like absolutely re- absolutely horrific yeah. I'm, I'm kind of shy and kind of introverted and I, I don't I don't want it to be about me. And um, someone actually gave me the nicest compliment the other day. They said that, because we're now really active on all all sorts of social channels, and she said, I think, you know, you're one of the few people who doesn't want to be famous. And I so don't want to. I I just thought it was such a lovely thing to say. I think fame is this horrific monster. Who who wants that? Why would you ever want that? My friend then decided she was going to set up the Facebook page. She was like, this is nonsense. I'm going to set up your Facebook page. And so she set it up and it was amazing. So my mum liked it. I was like, thanks mum. Good start. Yeah, then, then my friends. And that was like, and then, you know, you got to kind of your entire social network, which is about a hundred something people. And then other people started liking it. And I was like, okay, this is a bit weird. And then suddenly we were at 5,000 fans. And I was like, oh, okay. I definitely don't know 5,000 people. This is a bit weird. And so when I when I quit Topshop and, and took that, this kind of two years out, retraining, learning to be a goldsmith and all those things. I thought, oh, social, you know, this is this amazing thing. What what makes it different? Why is, because design has no IP around it, no intellectual property. It can be knocked off in the morning, you know, and you can't be precious about that because that's just the way the world works. But what's different about what I do? Um, uh, I, what I love about it is telling the story of where it's made. So we have a piece that's a swan feather ring and it's cast from real swan feather and made in solid gold from a feather that I collected from the canal in Dublin. It's made in Ireland. It's all that. It's the story that goes with it. And that's the story of people who buy those things. And so we, um, I was like, oh, okay. So Instagram's kind of nice. So I started out like taking a picture of a thing. Be like, this is my ring. Click. This is my dog. Click. And so the first time I ever really connected with social was with Instagram especially was the day we were it was we were getting married and it's two years ago and I was sitting at the the table and getting my hair done and you can't really do anything when your hair has been done it's really annoying and I was sitting there being like completely freaking out and like having this incredible emotional experience for me it was the first time my family were all over in Ireland so my, my two sisters and my brother and my mum everyone in, in Ireland it was so crazy and I was sitting there in front of me and I had my ring and Brian's ring and, and I made our wedding rings and um, mine was cast from a twig and his from a piece of bark from the same tree and I, I took a picture and I posted it to Instagram and I, I wrote the story of why I'd made the rings and why it mattered and how excited I was and that they were from Kildare because he's from Kildare and I remember the response was so amazing it was people understanding why why I loved it why I told the story and I was like oh this is actually amazing you're essentially a storyteller though aren't you at heart it's been one of those things that's a thread that's run through everything yeah. we've talked about here. It, like a, a daughter of a writer. I, I think, um, yeah, I love, I love the story. I love the why because I love the why it's made. I love the people who buy it. And that's why social is so incredible. So I am addicted to Instagram. I absolutely love it. I, it's amazing. I get to, I get to meet all the people digitally, obviously, but get to meet them all. Do you find that your love of it gets in the way of doing actual work? Um... Or do you have a way of boxing it off? I think it is my actual work. I, like, I'm very specific. I, I, I'm too old for Snapchat. Like, I'm 33. I'm like, Snapchat and I aren't, aren't mates. Um, Twitter doesn't suit me. I, I can't abbreviate. I'm, I'm far too... As, as I was saying earlier, I'm really chatty. Um, Have you never tried tweet one of seven, tweet two of seven, tweet three of seven? <laughs> that works for me. Oh, God. Be prepared for a deluge of yeah. tweets. I'm going to be unstoppable now. But I love the visual and I love the story. So, like, I consider Instagram my job. I reckon I spend about 20 hours a week on it. But I work about 60 to 70 hours. 
do you read books a lot? I am a total, I'm an avid, avid reader. So when I was about 10, I decided I wanted to read all of the classics. I wanted to read Great Expectations, I wanted to read War and Peace. Never tackled Ulysses, but I wanted to read all of them. And I remember getting all of them. So going to the library with my mum, this is the homeschooling thing, and getting all of the books and tearing my way through them. And then, uh, so I've gotten older and working and I, I don't have any time, so I have audiobooks. So I spend my life, I, I have a, I travel a lot for work. I'm always back and forth to London, back and forth to New York. And I pick a book per trip and an audiobook. And that is my companion and it runs with me everywhere. So I absolutely i'm a voracious reader but i don't read a single book anymore but i devour audiobooks you were saying about about listening to, to radio earlier on is that something that you still do a lot of i am with total radio addict i get all of my news i guess i don't i don't read i don't read a lot because i spend a lot of my day you know doing report strategy that sort of thing so i don't when i want the news i don't go to i don't go to read it i want to hear it and i what i love about radio is that it's your companion so you're doing you know whatever i need to do and i love it especially when i'm making so if i'm getting i'm set you know working on setting diamonds and you just listen you get to be part of it i've actually just discovered podcasts which is actually really mad they've been around for a while yeah Yeah, it's like embarrassing I know all of you're them. on one right now yeah I know and this yeah. was, it only happened about eight weeks ago and do you know how I discovered them Instagram which just says everything <laughs> you need to know about my life <laughs> it's like one of my favorite Instagrammers started her own podcast and I I was like oh this is okay fine I'll fine fine I'll finally get into podcasts because I'm not really a music person like I, I love music for dancing but I don't really get like sitting and listening to music Instagram that's how I find pod- podcasts slightly later than everyone else I will admit that's fair it has been absolutely brilliant talking to you here at your hidden bat cave somewhere off the <laughs> west coast of Ireland but thanks a million for talking to us and thank you so much for coming Rick This episode was produced by Ethna Kelly. The series producer is Alice O'Sullivan. I'm Rick O'Shea. Thanks for downloading Originators. You'll find details about this and all the rest of the episodes in the series on the RTE2FM website at 2fm.ie slash The Collective. The Collective. 2FM.